the terror, the, the nature of the terror is that it cannot be predictable. She said totalitarian terror is different from any other kind of terror. That is, for example, if you live in just an ordinary dictatorship, you got some data. He's not a totalitarian. He's just a strong man. Yeah. You kind of know that if you don't cross the strong man, you're okay. All right. If, 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 if you don't give this guy trouble, he doesn't give you trouble. Um, you know, if you live in a theocracy, if you follow the rules, you'll be okay. Said, however, if you live in a totalitarian state, you're never okay. That is, you can be Stalin's closest comrade and you still get put on trial in the show trials. Welcome back to the Lucas Scrobot Show. I am Lucas Scrobot, and this is where we uncover purpose, which is what we've been talking about, relentlessly pursue truth and own the future. We are talking with Dr. Michael Egnor. And if you have not heard the first part of this episode, um, man, you need to go back and listen because otherwise all this is going to be over your head. I'm already drowning um, in, in everything that Dr. Egnor is saying. Um, it's just mind-blowing. Dr. Egnor is a neurosurgeon um, who is also a philosopher in his own right, for sure. So Dr. Egnor, thank you so much for being with us again today. Um, you, We were talking about this Aristotle Aristotelian um, view of how we are composed of body, mind, and spirit, and it's that that spirit is the intellect, and and how y- you said that we're made in the image of God, and I, I think the way that you presented that is so beautiful. This picture of the the interplay between the physical realm and and our our mind, and then our spirit, which is interpreting and assigning meaning. Uh, and logic and, and reason to everything around us. And it's just fascinating that interplay, how all three of those components are integrated as one. And you can't, I can't say that, well, I'm just my spirit. I'm just my body. I'm just my mind. But really, it's the composite of all three of those things together. Um, So I, I, I'm just really, my mind is swirling in everything that you've been sharing with us. Oh, the uh, one very beautiful um, expression of that by uh, Thomas Aquinas and by a number of the scholastic philosophers and theologians was that human beings are the only thing in creation that bridge the material and spiritual worlds. Mm. That is that everything else in, in physical creation is material except us, just material. There's, there's no spirit in a rock. There's no spirit in an animal. Uh, and God and the angels are purely spiritual beings. And we are created as the bridge between God and the material world. We have our foot in both camps. Wow. Very interesting. <laughs> that's, I mean, I mean, I, that's so, it, it feels so true. It feels so right. And it, it's such a beautiful articulation to think of how we were created as man, as, as that bridge between the, the physical and the spiritual realm. Now, earlier on, you mentioned about will. Um, you, you mentioned uh, so many things about, about purpose. Um, how, how do we know that we have a free will? Ha- has there been experiments that have proven that we have will? Sure. Um, <clears throat> there are two reasons, I think, to, to posit that we have free will. 
Um, first of all, um, because on a purely logical basis, if we deny free will, <clears throat> um, we end up talking nonsense. And it's because of this. The modern denials of free will are invariably based on determinism. Mm. Uh, determinism is the, is the viewpoint that <clears throat> chemical reactions and, and all the atoms in our body work according to physical laws that are all determined. And generally, people who deny free will are materialists, and they think that we're wholly material beings. So if everything in our body is determined by chemicals and physical laws, then we couldn't possibly have free will because we're just determined by chemistry. <clears throat> the problem is, if that is true, then the opinion that we don't have free will is a chemical reaction of some sort. It must be, as if that's all we have is chemical reactions. But chemical reactions are not propositions. They're not things that are capable of being true or false. Mm. Okay, if I mix two chemicals and they form fizz, I can't thereby say, oh, well, that's true, or oh, well, that's false. There, there's no truth or false to it. It's just a chemical reaction. Right. So if you're claiming that you are a meat machine, that might be true, but your claim has no has no claim to truth. Your claim is, is just a chemical reaction. So if you're, if, if you're saying, I am fully determined by my chemicals, and you should believe me, I could say, well, maybe you are determined by your chemicals, but you haven't even said anything to me. I'm just listening to fizz. Oh, so, man. Um, so it's, it's, it's self-refuting. Yeah. Uh, so it may be yeah. true that the, that the materialists are just chemical reactions, so we should ignore them. Um, <clears throat> the, um, the other problem with the, with the denial of free will based on determinism is that determinism in physics has been proven to be false. That is that there have been some elegant uh, experiments performed over the past couple decades. Uh, there's a guy named Elaine Aspect in France. There are a number of physicists who have looked at, at this who can clearly show that in quantum mechanics <clears throat> that when there is collapse of the quantum waveform into a, a particular state, that before the collapse of the quantum waveform, the state that that quantum waveform will achieve when it collapses is not determined. That is that, and there, there are some very subtle, beautiful experiments that show this. Mm -hmm. So the simple argument that nature is deterministic, therefore we have no free will, is wrong on its premise. Nature is not deterministic. Mm. So that part of the argument is wrong. <clears throat> so for reasons of logic and reasons of physics, the denial of free will is on its face nonsense. It's simply wrong. And, and that, exper However, that experiment is the one where they have that gold sheet with those two slots and, the, and they're sh shooting a, uh, uh, an electron at it, which is can be both a wave and a particle at the same time, right? And then they're measuring where it, well, it, where it hits. And it's, it's related, when you, when it's you related observe. To, to that. It, it's related to that, but it's actually, it's a very, very subtle set of, of experiments. Um, uh, back in the 1970s, um, there was developed uh, an experimental idea that was quite remarkable, quite beautiful, to, to, to specifically address the question. And the question was, <clears throat> when you have the collapse of the quantum waveform, that you have, say, an electron that exists in a state of quantum superposition before it's, it's observed. 
So in a sense, there's a probability distribution of where that electron is. You observe it, and then all of a sudden, it is in one place. How does that happen? So, how, how, well, how does that happen? No one knows. No one knows. <laughs> Although there's some, there's some interesting, actually, uh, Thomas Aquinas would have something interesting to say about that, but that, that gets us off on a tangent. But it does happen. So the question people asked was, is there information in that system before it's observed? that will tell you where it's going to end up mm. or it does, or is there no information until it's observed? In other words, basically, are you discovering where it, where it is, or does the act of observing it create where it is? Mm. So is it, is it a discovery or a creation? Doesn't that make us, I mean, the implications of that would, would seem They're to say profound. that, Either the, the physical realm has a spiritual element that is right. um, embedded within it and or that we are creative beings and merely by observing observing something that we have a, a creative force just in our intellect of, of assigning purpose and meaning to an object. Right. Well – the, that was a, a, a philosophical issue that the, um, early, the physicists in, in the 1920s and, and, and after that uh, agonized over. And nobody had an answer to it uh, until the 1970s when um, it was realized that there was an experiment that could be done that could actually answer the question. Because it seems like such an enormously abstract philosophical metaphysical question, but it can be tested experimentally. And it can be tested experimentally by looking at the statistical distribution of um, paired particles that are emitted during um, radioactive events. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can't go into a lot of detail on it, but there is a way of testing it. And it has been tested. It's been tested repeatedly. And it is very clear from these tests uh, that um, there is no local determinism, meaning that when a particle is observed and it uh, the waveform collapses and say it, it has a particular location, that that location did not exist and could not be knowable before it was observed. The observation itself was what gave it that location. It didn't just discover wow. the location. Wow. And that's been proven. So what that proves is that nature is not deterministic. Which that means that, that fatalism, it's, that, that it's not fatalistic. Everything's not written, yeah. that there's things that are unknown. Precisely. Precisely. It's not like a computer program that has the code written in and you just have to uncover the code. It says there is no code. What, what happens happens at that moment and the future is not determined by the split second before it happens. And uh, now how that works philosophically, metaphysically, is mind-boggling. But... The remarkable thing is that physicists have shown that de determinism in physics is false. Physics is indeterminate. And so when a materialist says, ah, well, nature is deterministic, we're, we're meat robots, they're wrong on the meat robots, but they're also wrong on nature is deterministic. It's mm. not deterministic. So the very predicate for the denial of free will is wrong. And you also talk um, about free, like, free not. You know, you talk well, about... there's, yeah, there's... The, there, there, there have been experiments in neuroscience that have also looked at the question of free will. So from a philosophical and logical standpoint, the denial of free will is nonsense. Free will clearly exists. However, even from a neuroscientific standpoint, 
free will can be demonstrated. Um, the original pioneering work on this uh, was actually done by, by, by two different people. Uh, the first work, which was very, very interesting, uh, was done by a neurosurgeon named Wilder Penfield, uh, who was a pioneer of seizure surgery. And he did uh, a thousand awake brain operations. Mm. Gives people local anesthesia, stimulates their brain. And what he found was that, and he started out as a, as a materialist, and he started out as not believing in free will. But over his career, he tried to identify a region in the brain that would make the person believe that their will had been stimulated. Mm. And what the way he would do it is you can stimulate the surface of the brain and uh, cause a person's arm or leg to move. You can touch the brain with an electrode in your arm jerks. So cool. And, um, and he would do that to map the brain to do brain surgery for various reasons. What he would do, the person under the drapes was awake, couldn't see him doing this, and he would make their body move. Mm. But he would ask them, did you move it or did I make you move it? Mm. And the person always knew the difference. Never once wow. in, 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 in hundreds of thousands of trials could he make the person think that they had willed it. And then he would say, you move your arm whenever you feel like it, and I'll make him move it up here, and I want you to tell me which is which. And the person always knew. So Penfield said at the end of his career, he said, I could never find the will. I could never stimulate the will. And he said, so maybe the will isn't material, it's free. Wow. So that, that was one wow. line of reasoning. Uh, the second line of reasoning was by a neuroscientist named Benjamin Leibitt, uh, or LeBay. He is a neuroscientist who worked at um, University of San Francisco um, in, the, in the mid 20th century, and he did, he did beautiful work. His passion was um, to understand what's going on inside the mind at the same moment that we understand what's going on inside the brain. He was obsessed with what he called mind time, and he was, he was obsessed with synchrony. He was saying, at the moment you think of something, what are your brainwaves doing? And can I correlate that? So he devised a series of experiments. And, um, and he, he had many experiments with fascinating results. His most famous ones involved uh, the question of free will. So what he would do is he would have a volunteer sit at a desk, just like we're sitting here. And they'd have a button in front of them. And they'd have a clock with a sweep hand that they could look at. And the clock was made in such a fashion that you could glance at the clock and know within like 10 milliseconds of the exact time on the clock. And um, he had electrodes on their scalp that recorded their brainwaves. And he would say, just sit at the table. And whenever you decide to push the button, just push it. But the moment the decision enters your mind that you're going to push the button, just note the time on the clock. So we know when you decided, when your mind had that decision. So he recorded three things. He recorded the brainwaves. He recorded the time the person saw on the clock when he decided to move. And he recorded the time the person pushed the button. So what he found was that when you decide to push a button, there's about a half second delay between your decision to push the button mentally and you're actually pushing the button. Mm. You know, it, it, it takes a moment between I'm going to push and, and then you push. Then he found that if you look at the brain waves, there's a spike in brain activity that happens about a half second 
before you decide to push the button, before you have any mental awareness of the decision, your brain spikes. Then you decide a half second later, and then you push the button a half second later. So this pattern, and he called this brainwave the readiness potential. And other physiologists had seen it. It had been seen since the 1920s by, by a bunch of German physiologists, but none of them did the kind of experiments that Leibet did with pushing buttons. So Leibet found that your brain has a spike that you're not aware of. About a half second later, you have the decision come into your mind, and then you, you carry out the decision. So what's so that, that, that first spike? Where do you think that's coming? Is that coming from the spirit? Well, well, here's, here's the thing. It, well, it's coming from your brain, you know, what, whatever that is. Uh-huh. Um, and so the initial interpretation of Leibitz's results were that you don't have free will. And what's happening is the chemicals in your brain are spiking away, and it makes you do stuff. And you think it's free, but it really is being driven by your brain. Right, because the argument would be your brain spikes, your your physical body has signaled for you to do something, then you become consciously aware of it, and then you somehow tell your arm to move and hit the button. Right, right, right. And, and, and there are all sorts of ways of understanding that materialistically. Um, but yeah, that, that was sort of the paradigm, that basically um, we're marionettes being 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 pulled mm. by strings mm. and he found that the pull of the string happens before we're aware of the thought so our thoughts are like pulled by strings however being a very good scientist he carried the research one step further what he did was and this and these initial results l- lended themselves to a materialistic inter- interpretation of the mind that it's all just matter mm. and that we don't have free will what he then did next was brilliant he then told these research subjects, he said, okay, let's do this again. But when you decide to push the button, immediately veto your decision and don't push it. So sit there, have your finger on the button, and every once in a while say, I'm going to push the button. Oh, no, 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 I'm not going to do it. And don't, and don't push it. So he said, so let me see what happens in your brain when you veto. And what he found was that nothing happened to the brain when you veto. Hmm. So that you have the readiness potential, wow. you have the thought, there's complete brain silence, and you don't push the button. And he said, it wasn't so much that you had free will, but that you could always veto it, and the veto was free. The veto wasn't from your brain, because there was no brain spike. So he said, you have free won't. So it's almost an, an argument for self-control. Yes, precisely. So uh, he was Jewish. And uh, rather well-versed in um, theology. And he said that it's amazing how, how consistent this is with the idea of sin and temptation mm. and self-control. And he said what it looks like is that your brain is bombarding you all the time with pre-conscious temptations. Do this, do that. You're not aware of it consciously, but it's driving you. And you then have the free choice as to whether you push the button or not. Wow. And your free choice is not material, it's spiritual. Wow. And he showed it was spiritual by the fact that that free choice didn't involve any brain spike at all. There was no material uh, correlate to it. So he, wow. so, he, so he said that he felt that he had demonstrated with neuroscience the basic religious concept 
that we are free to resist or choose temptations. Uh, and um, I think he was right. Now, the interesting thing is that materialists have extensively used his initial research results as evidence for a lack of free will. But they have almost, almost entirely ignored the re his second phase of experiments. And Leibet himself was a passionate defender of free will. Hmm. He said, I proved free will was real. Wow. And, uh, but people use his experiments all the time to deny free will. And honestly, it kind of points to a certain level of, um, of dishonesty in, uh, in the neuroscientific community. Neuroscientists know what Leibniz found. And the second part of his experiments are generally ignored. Yeah, because it definitely doesn't suit their narrative or, or their right. worldview. And it definitely right. says that no longer is man does have, has a person have free agent or, you know, the ability to make decisions. It's, it seems to fit more of their, their worldview and understanding that, well, if they don't have free will, then it can, it proves that they are just a, a social, you know, what, whoever they are is just because of their social environment and can almost remake this argument for determinism where, well, you are the way that you are and you can't do anything about it, um, which essentially renders you a victim. Uh, but but what he what you're saying is that you're, you're not a victim. You are have a powerful agent. Um, you are a powerful agent in your life and in the world around you. Absolutely. And his um, the, the free will, I believe, is is essential to human dignity. Um, and um, I believe that the, the concept that we don't have free will, which is mistaken on both philosophical and scientific grounds, if that concept gains traction in our, in our societies, um, we are uh, heading for some very, very bad things. And you talk, uh, you talk a lot about this. You talk about how you know, there's phrases like act out of love. You talk about there's these, these phrases of um, um, every, every child matters or uh, every child a wanted child. You, you've talked about phrases um, you know, of, of, of Marxism that says you know, from, from one's, one's ability to one's need and seeing that there's these kind of like schisms of language and that these, these have very, you know, big consequences, you know, Darwinism, materialism, they're not just ideas that um, we can play around with and mess with, but they actually impact people's lives in, in very real ways, that the way that we view and derive morality um, really impacts lives in a very real way and so how do you see, you know, you, you have eloquently unpacked over the last hour, you know, you, two hours of our conversation, first episode, second episode, so eloquently unpacked, um, you know, this, this framework of the fact that we have free will, that we have agent, that we have, we are spiritual beings, we have minds that are not just material, we're not just meat machines. Um, what are the consequences of believing some of these things that have been proven to be not true? Where does that lead us? Um, the philosopher who I think has had the deepest insight into the consequences of denial of free will is Hannah Arendt. 
Uh, Hannah Arendt um, is a um, philosopher uh, in the 20th century. She originated the term the banality of evil. And she studied uh, Nazism and communism and mm -hmm. studied totalitarianism. And she was a brilliant philosopher. And she um, described the basic nature of totalitarian government, I think, in a, in, in a way that really gets to the heart of what it is. And um, it, it takes a moment to kind of go back and see how she looked at totalitarian governments. And we can see how this relates to the, to the denial of free will. Arendt said that um, there have only been a few basic styles of government that humanity has used over the past several thousand years. There's democracy, there's tyranny, there's dictatorship. There's a few basic ways of organizing people. Um, virtually all kinds of government before totalitarianism, which is a modern new way of doing it, virtually all kinds of government um, looked at stabilizing society by getting a set of laws so we all know the rules, we all play by the rules, we lead our lives in stable, controlled ways. Uh, even theocracies and so on um, have stable rules, whether they be rules of Islam or rules of Christianity or rules of Judaism. They're, they're all stable ways of doing things. He said that the totalitarian idea is radically different. Mm. What the totalitarian idea is, is that human society is organized not as a stable system of laws or rules, but as a movement, as a, essentially a tidal wave of change in nature. And the essence of totalitarianism is constant movement. We're always trying to, to reach the, the dictatorship of the proletariat or the domination of the Aryan race or whatever this, this movement is. And he felt that, or she felt, that this idea, this totalitarian idea that, that society wasn't a set of rules, but instead was a, was a, was, was a river raging, moving, really originated with Darwin. The whole idea that we are evolving, that there's a natural selection out there, that there's this inherent um, evolution of human society built into nature, and that we really have no choice but to go with the flow. And she said that the totalitarian idea, and the, the for, for example, Marxists loved Darwin. Uh, Engels said, really, that basically what Darwin did for science, Marx did for history. Yeah. Uh, they, so they identified themselves. The Nazis were very big on Darwinian yeah. evolution. Um, and it goes along with the totalitarian idea. And Arendt said that the problem is, that if you view human society as this river that's flowing, how do you get everybody to flow? I mean, people don't like to flow. People want to keep their traditions. They mm -hmm. want to, you know, they want to have their lives. And she said, what totalitarians do is a, is a few things. The first thing they do is they isolate people. They make people separate from other people. Right. This isolation makes it difficult. You, you, you can't meet with other people. You can't talk with other people. She said, then they paralyze people. By paralyzed, she means they keep people from taking any spontaneous action themselves, and they do it with constant terror. She said that terror is, in a totalitarian state, what law is in a democracy or, um, or, 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 or theocracy. That terror is, is what freezes people so they can be put in the stream and moved at will. Mm. And uh, she said that 
the terror, the, the nature of the terror is that it cannot be predictable. She said totalitarian terror is different from any other kind of terror. That is, for example, if you live in just an ordinary dictatorship, you got some data. He's not a totalitarian. He's just a strong man. Yeah. You kind of know that if you don't cross the strong man, you're okay. All right. If, 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 if you don't give this guy trouble, he doesn't give you trouble. Um, you know, if you live in a theocracy, if you follow the rules, you'll be okay. Said, however, if you live in a totalitarian state, you're never okay. That is, you can be Stalin's closest comrade, and you still get put on trial in the show trials. And that's what happened. Be, and that's definitely what happened. Precisely. In fact, it was often the people closest who ended up in the gulags or getting a bullet in the back of the head. And, and she said there was a reason for that. The reason is that the, the only way that terror accomplishes its its goals in a totalitarian state is if it is completely unpredictable and people know it. Because if you can predict it, you can take action on your own. And the whole point of the totalitarian state is that you must never take action on your own. Mm. You are livestock. And that's the totalitarian notion is that you are cattle to be herded. You are, you, and, and this is where she said, and I quote from her, in totalitarian systems, guilt and innocence are senseless notions. They have no meaning. And what she meant was that totalitarians deny free will. Because if you have no free will, you're never guilty. Because you, you didn't choose anything. But you're never innocent either. You're just cattle. She said, if you start in a totalitarian, if a totalitarian system says, oh, th uh, this guy's guilty of breaking this law. That messes up the system because then people know what law to follow. But so she pointed out that in the show trials, they weren't really trials about guilt or innocence. Everybody knew in the very beginning what was going on. Mm -hmm. This guy was going to get shot. The show trial was to terrorize people. It was to make people say, hey, that could be me tomorrow. And I didn't do anything wrong, but neither did he. Nobody even knew what they did. They just ended up with a knock on the door and boom, they're on trial and, and, and they're shot. So the denial of free will is the essence of totalitarian management of populations. Totalitarians look at you like cattle. Their goal is to herd you. A, a communist will herd you towards dictatorship of the proletariat. A Nazi will herd you towards rule of the Aryans. They all have got their, their, their movement, and you're just a cog in that movement, and cogs can never have free will. Mm. So the denial of free will is the cornerstone of a totalitarian society, and, and it's extraordinarily to, dangerous. To interject, um, you know, Marxism also essentially says that there is no such thing as the individual. You are just a, a sub substructure, cog, if you right. will of the greater Correct. social structure. So um, you are not an individual, you are a individual. You are just part of whatever identity politic group that they happen to slice you in today. Um, and, and to your point about the proletariat and those closest to, to Stalin, um, essentially getting a bullet in the back of their head, it was, well, the, the pie was sliced a little differently today and you are now um, you know, a person of, of privilege who's, you know, oppressing and we're going to 
just reshuffle the deck. Um, but th there seems to be that you're making an argument that the the basis of individuality, the basis that I'm an individual that is capable of my own agency, of my own thought that is different than any any of my my race, my my gender, my my age, or 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 uh, what's the fourth one? My class. It, it, I am able to think independently. You're saying that 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 notion of free will is tied inexorably to the notion of an individual. And the moment that we undermine the idea of free will, the individual no longer exists, and it, it is just a, a setup for a totalitarian, um, terrorizing state. Yes, exactly. Uh, and the one thing a totalitarian state cannot tolerate is even a single individual who asserts independent thought and free will. That's lethal to a totalitarian state. The, there, there, there was an, an, an example of this um, is uh, Václav Havel, who is a, 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 a Czech uh, playwright and philosopher who, after the fall of communism, actually became president of the Czech Re of Re of Republic. He... Um, was involved in the resistance to the communist state there. And he wrote a, um, a very famous essay that was passed secretly among the resistance people to the communist state um, about a greengrocer. Uh, and um, it, it's a fascinating essay. And what Havel said is, imagine <clears throat> in this communist country that we live in, if you have a guy who's a greengrocer, he has this little shop and he sells vegetables. And the government requires that you put up communist slogans on posters on the wall of your shop. Everybody does that. You have to do it. He said, what would happen if one morning the greengrocer gets up and just says, I'm not playing along with this anymore. And he takes a poster stand. That's all. He, he doesn't, you know, riot. He, he doesn't go out and vocally oppose the government. He just kind of gets a mind of his own and says, I just don't like these posters in my shop. He said that that action is the greatest possible threat to that to that totalitarian state. It's more of a threat than an army of tanks. They can never let people think for themselves. So he said that what we have to do as a resistance to this is become the greengrocers. Mm. We have to stop paying homage to this stuff. We have to stop putting up the posters. You can do it quietly. You can do it subtly. But we have to stop being a part of this, and that will destroy the system. And it worked. But people in the communist countries stopped playing along. Really? So, my, I mean, my, my initial thought is that I understand fully why that act is the most dangerous act. Um, it's, it's essentially showing that they they're thinking for themselves and thought is dangerous. It is so dangerous. And that simple act would have instantly led them to the gulag. Like that simple act would have yes, instantly. Yes. Yes. That's, yes, that's your death yes, penalty. Right. Um, yes, absolutely. But if a million people did it, they couldn't stop it. That's the problem. That, and that's why they take you to the gulag, to make sure a million people didn't do it. And uh, Vaslav Havel said, let's everybody do it at the same time. Not a riot. Not we we don't show up at the at the at the Capitol with with the AK forty seven. We just take down the posters. 
quietly without saying a word. And you see actually this in real life. Um, there's a guy named Nikolai Ceausescu, who was the uh, communist dictator of Romania. And uh, he was a brutal guy, a really nasty guy, a real Stalinist. And he ruled with an iron fist for decades. And when communism began to fall, and this, this was in, in, in the late, I think it was in the late 80s, um, people started kind of doing what, Hop, what Boss of Havel had said. And they kind of, they, they weren't playing along anymore. So Ceausescu um, saw this happening and was panicked by it because it was millions of people start, starting to not listen. Mm. So he had a rally in the capital city in Romania where he got up on a balcony to this crowd and he called the people in the capital city. There, there were at least hundreds of thousands of people in the crowd. And he began talking to them about Marxist Leninist ideology. And they began to laugh. The crowd laughed. Mm. And you could see his face. It's actually on, on, uh, on uh, YouTube. Really? He went, he went white. He went pale. He realized, this is it. When they laugh at me, this is it. And he was dead a day later. They shot him. So the, what, what, what Havel was basically saying is that when we assert our human dignity, when we exert our free will, when we say we're not a part of this system anymore, when you're in a, a, a totalitarian state, that is what kills totalitarianism. That's why they need to terrorize people, because that's if they let that happen, they're done. So that's what the terror is. But the terror depends upon the denial of free will. And I should point out, and I'm not a, conspira a conspiratorial guy, right. but when you look deeply in, at, at what Hannah Arendt said about totalitarian systems, the COVID-19 lockdowns, although they don't mean we're in a totalitarian state, but there's a flavor of it. Yeah. The isolation, Absolutely. the social distancing, the terror. You know, you don't know if you're passing the virus or not, the guilt, the randomness of it. That is, for example, with these riots that have been happening in the United States, in most of these cities, there are still lockdown orders that these businesses can't open. Right. It doesn't make so sense. If, so if the businessman in Midtown Manhattan opened his store, he would be arrested. But rioters can loot the store with the police watching and they don't get arrested. It, it doesn't make sense. You know, right. And that's and what Arendt would say was that's the essence of totalitarian government. Is it it doesn't make sense. You don't know what to expect. It throws you off. The point is the randomness. So then, so then, uh, so I, I'm fully tracking where you're going, and I I totally agree. My my next question it wouldn't be necessarily one of abstraction, but more detail. Where where are you leveling that uh, well-founded, in my opinion, argument of COVID, and even what we're seeing now with you know some peaceful protests and some you know not so peaceful protests. Um, in America, where where do you see that that falling? Because we have our our, our federal government and our, and our state government, um, and everything seems very out of sync. And I think that's one thing I really like about you. When I, I first came across your stuff, I was like, "Wow, this guy pulls no punches." You know, you're you just 
hit it where it lies. And so, you know, what do you, what do you see is not only going on in, in America, but, you know, what is the bigger kind of framework yeah. play that's right. happening? Well, first of all, um, I, I don't believe uh, that COVID is, is some kind of totalitarian plot, meaning that, you know, it's, it's a pandemic. Um, I, uh, I, I think it probably um, arose unintentionally. Uh, so it's not, it's not as if this is being or- orchestrated by a bunch of neo-Nazis or neo-communists. However, what I, I do believe that there are many aspects of the government's response to the pandemic that have a totalitarian flavor. Yes. That have this notion of social isolation, um, of paralysis. Uh, these are all very well described characteristics of totalitarian systems. And it's totally. almost like completely it's almost like it's a dry run. You know, it's almost like we can get a flavor of that. What I think that means is, and I don't I don't know that Aaron went into this herself, but you can ask a deeper question, where did the idea of totalitarianism come from? I mean, obviously, you know, there were philosophers, there was Marx and there was Lenin and there was Hitler and people like that. But maybe the totalitarian spirit is something deeper in the human psyche. And it can come out perhaps in a way that is not entirely deliberate. That's not, I don't, in that the, you don't have to be, you know, the, the governor of this state or that state sitting there thinking that you're going to have some totalitarian plot, but maybe it's kind of, it's kind of in the human toolkit. Because isn't it birthed out. out of their belief system? It's birthed out of their worldview that there's not necessarily always actors in the world who are strategically plotting and conspiracy theory stuff, but there's people who believe a certain set of values and morality and way of viewing the world, and then the fruit of that is creating, you know, totalitarianism in in their their, their leadership. Right, right. Uh, the one thing that is unquestionably true is that totalitarian methods of the kind that Hannah Arendt described um, are quite effective. Uh, you know, they, they, you know, the Soviet Union stuck stuck around for you know for for, for seventy years, and they, they, these these things work for a while. And uh, I think we have to be very careful uh, in our societies uh, to avoid um, structures of government that have totalitarian flavor. Uh, and uh, the COVID lockdown, I think, we, we need to think about what happened to us. Mm. And we need to be careful. We need to be very careful. Mm. Well, Dr. Ignore, I, I really appreciate your time. I know that we're, we're over time, actually. Um, so I appreciate you sticking around with us. This We hit on so much um, from, you know, your beginning, just systematic laying out this beautiful picture of who we are as as a human being who we are as a human being created in the image of god and and then even unpacking how you know there's this and it's not maybe it's maybe it is mystical but the uh the fact that we can observe something and and it creates the future that we really do have this uh, you know god-given co-creating um ability as as beings that uh, bridge the spiritual and the natural to be creative agents not just uh, of you know businesses or ideas but of actually determining things in the world by our our thoughts by purposing by our action 
and then even just how eloquently you, you brought us home to some of the real dangers that we are all living in today across the globe of, of COVID. And as you, you know, well put it, totalitarian flavors. Um, you're right. It's, it's something that we need to we need to be con- concerned about and be careful of. I, you know, I'm personally uh, worried on, on a lot of different levels of, of where everything is going. Hopeful, um, but there's still a looking back through history, knowing that it's happened before. Why couldn't it happen again? Um, yeah, yeah. Do you have any last uh, closing thoughts or Mark, maybe a charge um, to us listening? I um, I believe that the the most profound philosopher of the modern age was Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, and that he understood what happened to humanity uh, in the gulag and in the totalitarian system of communism, but he understood the West very well also. And he summed it up beautifully uh, when he said that when asked what went wrong, why, what, how did mankind in the 20th century go so wrong? And he said, we forgot God. Mm. We forgot God. And um, if we maintain our um, second person, me to you relationship with the Lord, um, we're, we can protect ourselves from this because that's, that's why we're here on earth is to have that relationship. Can you, can and, you explain that a little bit more? What do you mean by second person? Um, in philosophy of the mind, um, it's very cop- different ways of looking at the mind and the brain are often described as first person or third person uh, metaphysics. First person is I. That is, it's, it's the subjective experience that I have of myself. Third person is purely objective, like a physical thing. And of course, the big problem with philosophy of the mind is how does like a physical thing, the brain, which is a lump of third person reality, become me, which is a first person reality. Mm-hmm. And um, you can struggle with that. But there is another way of looking at the nature of the human person. And that is that our fundamental reality is second person. Mm. And second person in linguistics is you. And the you is is God and man. That is, we're not meant to be isolated minds, abstract minds. We're not meant to be meat machines, just bodies. Mm. We're meant to be in a relationship with the Lord. Mm. And that relationship is who we are. And we always get into trouble when we move away from that second person relationship. That's powerful. That That is so powerful. And you probably did this on purpose because you are a neurosurgeon. But that, that seems to tie straight back into what you're talking about, totalitarianism, where if we are not in that you, if we are isolated from relationship with God, the moment that we're isolated, our lives become chaotic, unpredictable, where, where we're at the, the mercy of of nature or other people, and that creates that paralyzation with us as individuals. But the moment that we come out of that isolation and we step into relationship and step into being known and, and having a sense of destiny and purpose and meaning, and that that there is 
yeah, that, that relationship that we move out as individuals, we move out of that place of chaos and into that place of order. Yes, yes. Um, a genuine belief in God and love for God and worship of God is toxic to a totalitarian system. Mm. They can't permit they they can't permit a shred of it. Mm. Totalitarians will either completely co-opt the churches, or if they can't, they will uh, they will destroy them. Uh, so religious belief is is the is is the vaccine for Come this. On. Uh, and Solzhenitsyn got it right. This all happened to us. Nazism, communism, all the miseries of the modern world is simply because we forgot God. It's beautiful. I, I believe it. I agree. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lucas. Thank I, you. It's a real privilege. Thank you. I am just at a loss for words at how beautifully he wove that together. Um, I had, I was thinking the episode was going to go in a, in a much different direction. Um, and my goodness, I think that is just such a beautiful, beautiful picture of how we are created, a beautiful picture and uh, articulation of, of how our soul and our, and our mind and our spirit and our body are function and work together um, from a metaphysical, um, philosophical standpoint, and then how it's complemented by, by science and by data by physics, um, just unbelievable. And then, and then his take home about how, how the moment that we believe we are not agents of free will, but we are just products of a system. The moment that we believe that we, we, we're victims, the moment that we believe that we don't have the agency to take a, take an action, to take a, a step, to take a choice, to, to not act right? Free won't, as he said. The moment that we say, well, free won't doesn't happen. I just, I'm going to act on my impulses and whatever feels good, I'm going to do because that's what I am. I'm just, you know, I'm just a lump of dirt, just a, a sack of wet meat. That's all my mind is. It's all my brain is, but it's not true. The truth is that we have free will, that we are individuals and you, you, are able to think for yourself. You are able to think thoughts that other people disagree with, that, that, that you sometimes might be able to even disagree with, that we should not just be going along with whatever the, the totalitarianism fear narrative is. Instead, we should think for ourselves and stand up even if it costs us. Because if, it, if we don't, if we decide to be people who, who abdicate our free will, if we decide to be people who don't act in the world, who don't own the future, who don't live with purpose, who don't uh, seek and uncover the truth, and when we find the truths that, that contradict things that, that we held as true before, and there's evidence, when we're presented with evidence we accept it because it will have a, a powerful impact on our life. You know, I, I, I talk about this, you know, so often we're, we're looking for that purpose. We're looking for that meaning, but we've forgotten truth. We've forgotten God and we cannot find purpose and meaning outside of truth because it's the truth that sets us free. The moment that we are just robots, the moment that we are just 
determinism, the moments that we're just socially constructed beings, that, well, the, 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 the environment and the home that I grew up in just socially constructed me and I am who I am and that's the end of it. It's over. It's over. And so, I mean, we could, we could spend a lot of time thinking and, and digesting this and I don't, I don't want to. I think the, the way that he put it was just so eloquent. Um, I, I encourage you to just go back and listen to this. I think it was just a, a, a beautiful picture of who we are as humans. And that is important to remember, that humans, that humanity, we are beautiful creatures that have been made in the image of God. And each person, each individual should be honored, cherished, loved, and valued. Each individual and should be seen for who they are as an individual, not just by their group that they're a part of. Not just by their group that they're a part of. Because once you just clump them in with the group, they no longer have free agency. So that is all. Uh, you can find Dr. Ignore's information in the show notes and, and a lot of the things that he talked about. They're all going to be in the show notes. I strongly suggest you go and listen to more of his his lectures, his YouTubes, his uh, his articles. Um, like he like he he says it how it is, and that's definitely refreshing uh, in this day and age where there's so many people who so much of our media is just following party line. And so I, I highly recommend his and highly commend his material to you. Um, that is all for today's episode. Please, if this struck a chord in your heart, tell one or two friends, share it with them and sit down and have a conversation about it. Sit down and talk about these things amongst yourself. Finally, I'm Lucas Scrobot. You are a change maker. You are and have agency of change. So I hope you go out and own the future because today we have proven, he has proven that you actually have the power to create a world for yourself and to create the future that lies ahead of each and every one of us.